0: So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or a grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome to the East Coast Offense Podcast. This is Chris Liss, your host. This podcast is sponsored by FanDuel. There's a special offer for new FanDuel users. Get a free six-month road wire subscription with a $10 deposit on FanDuel. Go to fanduel.com slash RW. Not only will you get that free subscription, but you'll also have that $10 available to play with on FanDuel. It's more than $40 in value for just 10 bucks. Go to FanDuel.com slash RW. So this is the East Coast Offense Podcast, and usually uh, I'm joined by Dalton Del Don. But that dude is – I don't know what he's doing. hes uh, He says he's in L.A. doing some Yahoo stuff. I doubt it. I don't know. what He's probably just dealing with his drug problem or something. But anyway, it's a huge upgrade. We've got a huge upgrade this week. Uh, we got the professor, Dr. Andre Snellings, RotoWire's wires Senior Hoops Analyst, or whatever made-up title we give him. He is a, a very hes very senior. He's very old now. He's younger than I am, but he's been at this for a while. Knows his hoops, and uh, glad to have you, Andre. It's, it's been a while. We've been trying to make this happen, and now at least we're, we're finally making it happen.
1: Yeah, we, in order to make it happen, we had to do it uh, an hour before I go to work, because uh, trying to do it at work was just not going to work.
0: Yeah, you have, obviously you have a real job, which is a stupid thing to have, uh, and uh, <laughs> I would advise anyone against it. But uh, We people... can't
1: all be independently wealthy like you.
0: <laughs> yes, that's true. It's true. Uh, and so, yeah, some people have to make a living, and, and that's that. All right, well, I want to talk Hoops Analytics, um, and this kind of grew out of your uh, Hoops Lab uh, blog, which I just could not recommend more. Com. Andre writes mostly about... Well, you write actually about fantasy, about uh, NBA analytics, DFS. There's some social commentary on it, which I actually have a couple uh, things to talk to, to you about that too later in the pod, but it's basically sort of, I don't know what you sum it up. What, what would you, what would you say the blog is?
1: Yeah. The blog was my attempt to take everything that I write about the NBA and put it all into one place. So um, as you pointed out, I've got a an analy- So I broke it down into tabs. So, it's got an analytics tab where, I, you know, I talk about analytics a lot. I've also got a player evaluation tab, which is kind of the opposite. So people tend to, to think about analytics kind of like, you know, Billy Bean in baseball. There's some people that really get into it. And then there's some people that are like, uh, oh, you know, we don't need the nerds telling us how to play basketball. You know, all I need is to watch the game and I know exactly what happens. So I've got a tab for people like that too. I call it player evaluation where I just, you know, we go to the Vegas summer leagues and, I, I scout things out or if I go to a game or if I watch a game or anything that talks about how a player plays more so than the numbers will we'll go in that tab. Um I've got a historical comparisons tab, which I call kind of like my barbershop conversations. It's where I might talk about players past or present and, and kind of how they compare to each other. You know, how does Michael Jordan compare to Kobe Bryant compare to LeBron James, you know, uh, things of that nature, but with a little more depth, you know, not just a, Oh, you know, Joe Lou is the greatest I'd ever lived. You know, I'm actually going to put, put some, uh, some, some thought and some numbers into why one player was better than another or would fit into another era or whatever. Um, then I've got the fantasy tab, you know, where I'm talking about fantasy hoops or, or DFS. And then I've got my miscellaneous tab, which is everything else. And that's where the, the social issues you talk about. That's where that'll come in. Um, when Game of Thrones comes back on, that's where I'll be talking about Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, you know, the Olympics, whatever comes to my mind. It's not about the NBA directly. Uh, goes under that miscellaneous tab.
0: Yeah, you were writing about tennis a couple of weeks ago, so you started. Yeah, uh, that—that's when I know you've you know gone off the deep end. You're writing about tennis. Now I actually really like tennis myself, so I was I was down with the tennis posts.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you have to. You live in Europe, like right? yeah. if, if you don't like tennis, you're not allowed to go through Europe. I'm pretty sure it's a it's a travel ban. The way uh <laughs> the way Trump tried to set that one up.
0: Here. Yeah, that would be a that would be a fairer basis for the ban. I think that, I think I'm I'd be more on board with that kind of ban. Uh, I'm I'm into tennis. I also I'm not really into soccer. Although I saw Benfica play Dortmund last night live, and I didn't even know. You know, Heather <laughs> just got these tickets because her dad's in town and figured he'd want to watch it. And I was doing a read on XM yesterday, and I was like, and blah blah blah, coming up at this. You know, the Dortmund takes. I'm like, wait, I'm going to that game. I was like, <laughs> I, you know, and Jeff's like, what? You're going to that game? I'm like, yeah. He's like, dude, that's like a an elimination championship round game. That's a serious game. I'm like, really? So we right. were we, we like the—that's literally the top seat in the house, like the last row of the highest level. It was like AO33. I'm like, AO? I'm seeing A, B, C, D. I'm like, what is AO? I was like, I don't know where our seats are. I don't, I can't figure it out. And I was like, it can't really. No, it can't. Oh, it, it is. Can't be yeah, it is. So it's 26 and another 15 or whatever the letter O is. So it's like 41 rows up from the highest level when you get out of the thing. It was still good. You could see the game. It was. It was cool. It was actually uh, yeah, well you were in the well, house. Well- yeah, you know, and it was well
1: like that. It doesn't matter.
0: It wasn't like you know watching like an NBA game from the top row. Like you could actually see what's going on in soccer. It was actually really easy. Anyway, let's get yeah. to your basketball blog. I, w- I want to talk about this, um, and one, I want to say one other thing because um RotoWire. Com. If you like this podcast, check it out. One of the things you do well is you basically do all the stuff that you just talked about: analytics, fantasy, barbershop conversations. Just sort of basic scouting stuff in plain English, right? So like if somebody isn't busting out the spreadsheets and having taken an advanced course in statistics or calculus or whatever, it's not really about that. Like anybody can read the blog and be like, okay, here's a sensible argument why, you know, LeBron is better than Jordan or Jordan's better than LeBron or whatever whatever the case you're making is or the and, and actually you're not really too hot takey in it. Like I actually think like you'll make a take and you'll defend it, but you'll be like this could kind of be wrong or there's, there's other ways to look at this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, where, where you started with the putting in plain English, that's, that's my MO, you know, um, we talk and joke a lot about, you know, um, uh, me having a PhD or, or uh, whether I have a PhD in basketball or what my PhD is in, but while I was working on that, when I was doing my dissertation, that's essentially what it comes down to is I can take really, really complex things, and translate it so that people that are either in other fields or people that just really aren't into the numbers to still be able to understand what's going on. You know, that's, that, that's kind of my thing. And so, um, you know, because basketball is also my thing, I figured I should be able to put the two together. You know, a lot of times the the people that start talking about, you know, once you get into the, the nerd stats or whatever, there, there's this feeling like, Oh, well, you know, as you pointed out, you, you gotta be a nerd or an egghead or, Or, you know, someone who never actually played the game and, and how Charles Barkley put it, like, yeah, you know, I I need a job for my nephew, you know, let me come up with a analytics job and and put him on it because he don't know nothing about basketball. That's not the case at all. You know, analytics is just looking closer at what basketball, you know, at at different ways to measure what's going on on the court. Um, it's it's not coming up with something new. And so, you know, for me, trying to, to take that and put it into something that, everybody can enjoy is, is one of the main reasons I did this.
0: Yeah. I think there's a little bit of that sort of reverse snobbery. You know, you're the athletes looking down at the nerds and saying, you never played, you don't know anything about this, but the nerds are like use super complex language and a lot of numbers and jargon and try to make it not understandable to lay person and be like, this is our, you know, we're like the priesthood of analytics and you (laughs) lay people have to rely on us to interpret it. And I think that's really bad. Like, I think that just, first of all, It's not, it doesn't really uh, endear them to like other basketball people, you know, who may, you know, actually know something by having a lot of experience in the game, but also it really just alienates them from like the average person who for it to catch on needs to be able to understand it. And so I do think it's important to put it in plain English. You might not be able to put every single concept, you know, that requires math into a way that just some average person can understand. But if you, if they can understand 75 to 80% of it, I think that's good. So I I really, I I don't like reading something that even I don't understand. I'm not, I'm not like some, you know, statistics whiz myself. I know a little bit, not a lot. And if I can't understand it, I don't think the person's doing a good enough job at conveying it. Unless their audience is just purely other, you know, math nerds that they have no interest in communicating to the public. They're doing a bad job if I can't understand it.
1: Yeah, no, I feel that. But, you know, you got to keep in mind, as far as uh, academia, or really... Any of the kind of advanced um, degrees, which you have an advanced degree, so you know, that's kind of how they teach it. You know, they, they, they teach it that um, you, you have to learn the language of, of whatever field it is. So if you're in medicine, you have to learn the language of medicine. And there's going to be a lot of Latin and a lot of long words for things that normally have short words. And I, I think back in the day, that probably was part of how, like you said, a priesthood, that's how they became, um, you know, elite is that, well, no right. one else can do this because they don't speak this language. And and, and that tradition is just kind of carried forward thousands of years. And it'll drive me crazy even now. Like, I don't know, you know, when it goes to biomedical engineering and electrophysiology and neural recordings and brains and stuff, I've been doing this a long time. Somebody can hand me a paper and I'll be reading it like, dude, what did you say? This shouldn't <laughs> take me an hour to read a four-page paper because I'm trying to translate it into English. You know, I'm. that's not my thing. And so... Um, but for something like this, you know, basketball is supposed to be entertainment. And, and, and there, there are ways to look at basketball and, and really understand the game better. But if it takes away from the entertainment value, then like you said, they're kind of useless.
0: Yeah, it's artificial barriers to entry is what I consider it, basically. All right, let's get into some of the nuts and bolts of this stuff. So, <clears throat> so you know, you're talking about analytics, and you have good ways of evaluating players. And I'm going to push this a little bit because I have this idea, and it's not a new one. But, and it's basically an old school sort of scouty barbershop idea, but that like, you know, there's like the individual player contribution. You can measure his plus minus on and off the court. You can measure all sorts of things analytically, but the idea that like two plus two is five in some situations or two plus two is three in others, meaning that there's sort of an emergent property of a team or chemistry between players that I would think would be very hard to capture in individual analytics. When you're breaking it down player by player, what's this guy worth? Don't you think there are some teams that the unit itself has a it's like an emergent property like the cohesion of that team is itself something that you can't add up the players and then subtract one and get some player from some other you know city traded in and have the same thing what, what are your, what are your thoughts about you know that concept
1: Yeah, so um, that concept if if, we're, if we try to discuss it in, in the analytics forum. Um, would be called synergy or something like that. Right. Where, you know, you, 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 take two people or three people or four people and put them together and they play better together than they could have played as, as individuals. Um, there are attempts at measuring that, actually. Um, I had an article come out yesterday on, on nylon calculus. It's going to, um, run on the hoops lab today, actually, about Isaiah Thomas, um, the Celtics Isaiah Thomas, not the, those old school Pistons one. And about where he fits in to, to the league as a whole. Is he, you know, is he an all-star? Is he a, a MVP candidate? Um, and when you look at things, he's really interesting because he measures out as one of the best. I mean, like one of the top two or three best offensive players in the NBA, and he measures out as far none the worst defensive player in the NBA. <laughs> I mean, right. by like a lot. I mean, like like it's not but, even close. It's him and a chasm and everybody else.
0: But does it matter? Does that matter? Uh, I mean, like like it is is like the defense from a point guard. Does it matter enough? that that really hurts him or no? Well, see, yeah, that's exactly what the article is about. Um, in, in, in this
1: case, and I make the, the argument that he's kind of uh, the new age Allen Iverson, that his defense is terrible, but if you surround him with good defensive players, um, it might not matter if, because his offense is good enough. He can run that unit. You can put enough defense around him. You can still build a contender. And so as part of that article, I, I, I quote and actually get some uh, references from uh, my guy Sinfield. Who, um, has an article exactly about what you were just talking about, about synergy and, and how do teams get put together and, and how, do, you know, what, what do you pay attention to when you're trying to evaluate individuals? And so his thing, the way he approached it was he took a whole bunch of, of, of kind of stats from the box score that you would want your team to be good at, you know, um, you know, points and, and, and efficiency and, Defense is measured in a couple of different ways and three point shots and all of these different things, and put them on a big circle chart where every, I don't know, if this circle, if you thought of it like it was um, a foot, you know, they had a, a diameter of a foot, every inch or so, there's another stat. And so then he takes the whole five man unit and says, How good are they at each of these individual stats? And then, you know, what he comes out with is this kind of fancy multicolored chart. It looks super cool. But also, um, you could put a number to it to evaluate how this entire unit of five, um, works overall. And, and, and he's, he's got a whole bunch of different ways to, to, to measure it and put it together. But ultimately, he kind of come out with one number to evaluate the whole thing. And so, um, the, the, the best units in the league, like, uh, uh, the, the, the Warriors when they're out there with the Mega Death lineup. I don't know what you call it now, but. That their Megadeth lineup, it measures out as the best lineup in the league. And then the Cavs have maybe the second-best five-man lineup. And then, anyway, the, the, the point is, is there are um, methods of evaluating five-man units, four-man units, three-man units, two-man units with numbers that can give you a sense of how well the unit as a whole plays. And then you can eliminate one player or another player, see how things change. And at the end of the day, you might not have approached it as I'm just measuring one individual person and seeing how good they are. But instead, by looking at their different lineups and how they perform with and without that person, you can tell whether there might just be a synergy where this guy just plays great with him. um, Or there might be something underlying, that that he's doing something that isn't really measured really well. Kind of the Shane Battier principle that me and you just talk about a lot. Where you look at his box scores and there's nothing impressive, but it turns out he's he's like a hoops professor. He's you know he was one of the first that was incorporating these kind of scouting um uh, analytics and, and and actually using them functionally on the court. And there's no way to tell that by looking at him as an individual, but by looking at all of his individual teams and noticing how all of them have synergy specifically for him, um, it, it kind of helps uh, I think point out exactly what you were just talking
0: about. Right. We're, we're talking about measuring molecules, not atoms. Right. So like the behavior that we're looking at is something that goes together, not something, not the individuals. You could add up what they do, but it's not the same with them. And the example I have is, you know, I, I think most people would argue that Shaq was a, a better player than Matumbo, But like, let's say your, your team was Nash, Reggie Miller, Larry Bird and like Charles Barkley. Maybe you're better off with Matumbo as your center than Shaq (laughs) because all those other guys can score and and pass and shoot, you know, but but maybe you just need a guy who doesn't need the ball, who's just going to play D uh, and your team's going to be way better.
1: Yeah, I I see where you're going with that. I think pretty much universally Shaq's always going to be the better decision just because he's so huge and such a threat that even if he never got the ball and just like uh, stood on a block, the other team is going to devote so much attention to him that everybody else is going to be able to shoot that much more efficiently. You know, we, but, we call that, like, warping of gravity. He's got that unto himself.
0: But even but, if you had a no-D all-offense team, you, you take Shaq. With well, Shaq, could, at his peak, he could play D, too. That was, that's, the, that's the sort of hole in that. But, like, okay, forget about Shaq. DeMarcus Cousins, you know? Yeah. Like, an elite offensive center that doesn't play as much D versus Matumbo. If you've got, like, Nash, Reggie, Larry, and Barkley – you don't yeah. need a guy who, who wants the ball. Yeah. And you
1: actually almost stumbled into something the, the reverse of, of what you were, that when it comes to big men, um, a lot of times, like Shaq is an exception to the rule. There are very few super dominant big men that are offense first. You know, it's, you know, Shaq, maybe Kareem, uh, Dirk Nowitzki. But, I mean, there's like a handful Charles Barkley, a handful of them in history. For most of the time, you want the defensive guy. And so, I would go as far as to say, I don't care if you have a super offensive team or not, you're almost always going to be better off with the Kimbe Matumbo as your center than you are as DeMarcus Cousins, at least for what he's shown to date. Cousins will be better on your fantasy team, but it's a lot easier to build a really strong team if you know you've got the best defensive player in the NBA.
0: The other uh, sort of thought experiment I, I have is with the NBA. I don't know why with the NBA, I think about this more than like football or whatever, but like like the greatest teams of all time, like putting together a, t- a team that would be ridiculous. But everybody has, like, sort of Jordan, LeBron, Magic, you know, KG or Duncan at the power forward, and Shaq or Wilt or Bill. R- I mean, it's, it's too easy to put, like, the obvious top five. So mm. I said, you know, we could break, we could make some teams that maybe had more synergy. That had, you know, so yeah. you've got a team of, like, long players. you got, like, Giannis, KG, Durant, Pippin, and Matumbo, or something, or Pippin and Olajuwon. Like, a team where. You just couldn't even pass the ball against that team. Yeah, you couldn't even throw a pass, you know, because it would just mm-hmm. be too dangerous to throw a pass. Or you'd have a team of fast guys like Iverson, Westbrook, LeBron, David Robinson, and I don't know who. You know, like I wonder if like you could get a team. Like sometimes you see a team in the NBA or even in college that they've got like three long wings, and it just becomes a problem for everybody else. And I wonder if there's like mm-hmm. ways to design an NBA team that there would be sort of this immersion thing that was like. Oh wait, you just—it's just impossible to operate against this team. Oh yeah, no doubt.
1: Like so, whenever I'm in one of those conversations about you know best team ever or or, or best way you could put a team together, I I very rarely just have a list of the top five players or something. I I look at how they would play on the court, and so like to me, Magic Johnson's the best point guard to ever live. But if I've got a team with Magic on it, I don't necessarily need LeBron on it. Because, right. you know, because it, you know they, they, they do too much of the same things. And the things that Magic's weak at, he needs, I mean, you've got to have a small player to defend the small players because Magic is not defending Iverson. You right. know, so, um, so yeah. Or, or another thing that, that often gets left out is his shooting. You know, obviously, I feel like Michael Jordan is the best shooting guard I've ever seen. But if I've got a team with all of this, you know, outstanding one-ball talent on it, Maybe I want Ray Allen or Reggie Miller as my shooting guard, right. you know, because, because, because they'll be able to knock the, the you know, not knock, knock down shots to open things up for everybody else. So yeah, you, you can put together some really, really fun squads. Um, I think I tend to do more balance, you know, kind of, uh, a mental version of what I was just talking about, uh, Sintil's charts doing where I kind of look at, okay, so I tend to like Shaq as my center. Nobody else can really do anything with him. He can disrupt whatever it is that they're trying to do. So I like him in the middle. So then if I've got him in the middle, my power forward doesn't need to be operating on the blocks. You know, I don't need Carl Malone. And so, you know, somebody like uh, KG, obviously he would probably be the power forward on my team anyway. Right. But, you know, the fact that he could be more perimeter-based and, and he can also kind of captain the defense while Shaq captains the offense, you know, I think that's kind of almost like the perfect NBA uh, front line. And then if I've got those two, then, then yeah, I'm looking for shooting in the wings. So I'm going like Ray Allen and I don't know, Larry Bird or, you know, some something like that in my two, two forwards. Just look for balance, you know, maybe, um, maybe if it's a Steve Nash, maybe it's a Chris Paul, you know, it doesn't have to be magic because I want somebody that can control the lineup, but also that can, can uh, keep shooting and spreading the court so that Shaq can just operate in the middle. So, so yeah, definitely there, there's definitely, I think, ways to put the team together that just make a lot more sense. Been going through the, the top at every position and saying, well, that's my team. I mean, it'll be pretty on paper, but you wouldn't actually win if you actually did it.
0: Right. There's only one ball, right? So so there's just too much duplication of guys who can score 30 a game, right? You just don't need three of those guys in your lineup at the same mm-hmm. time. Especially so, if they score the same way. Right. If they, if they score from the same place. I was thinking about like was, like you'd have a go, go bigs, like Magic at the point, Giannis at the two. LeBron at the three, KG or Duncan at the four, and Shaq at the five. Like, it'd be like the biggest lineup. (laughs) You just go in Mm -hmm. and you're everybody 6'9 or 6'11 at minimum.
1: Yeah. Do you remember, I guess it's about 10, 15 years ago, when that crew was coming along and they were all in the Western Conference? At one point, they ran a lineup out there like that for the All-Star game. It was like Shaq in the middle. I want to say like Duncan, Garnett, Dirk Nowitzki was playing like the two. Maybe they might have, that KG run the point. I don't know if it was Chris Webber or Rashid Wallace. Right. Whatever it was, it was, like, five guys that were all seven feet and above. I, I know. They still kind of do all of the things. The
0: I like it. I, I think people should experiment. And then, then I had one I wrote, passing ability. So, you had, like, Nash, Harden, Bird, LeBron, and, like, Jokic or someone like that. You know, you had, like, mm-hmm. five just passers on the team that can mm-hmm. all pass. Mm-hmm. Probably yep. wouldn't be, You probably don't need five passers. Shooters. And you have, like, you know Nash, Reggie Miller, Larry Dirk, and then like either Hakeem or Ewing is your center. Everybody can shoot. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, just, so the, the the
1: fun the fun thing about uh, thought experiments like that is that it really helps you kind of p- figure out what stats or, or what um, skills are the most portable, are the ones that any team needs no matter what, and which ones are kind of redundant. You know, and and so being a ball dominant player is going to you know, quickly have diminishing returns if you put multiple of them together. Um, I mean, we saw some of that in real life where LeBron and Dwayne Wade on the same team, when they got together, they were arguably two of the top three, two of the top four players in the NBA, but it took them a while to to really get on the same page. And even then, one of them essentially had to step back at all times. They were talented enough that they could still go to the finals every year and win a couple, but it wasn't like when you, it was the opposite of what you talked about earlier where you put two guys together and, oh, hey, wait, they play better together than they played apart is the exact opposite of that. Right. And it, a lot of that is, is based on skill sets.
0: If you had a Wade-level player that did different stuff than LeBron, it would have been, sick, have been sick, right? If it was like LeBron yeah. and KG, LeBron and Duncan, they would have won like five championships in a row. It would have been a joke.
1: Yeah, yeah. It would be – so, you know, when, when that Celtics team of 2008 or whatever, when they got together, um, that was the back end, the very end of the primes of Garnett, Pierce, and Ray Allen. But they were kind of a real-life version of that type of all-star synergy where, I don't know if you remember, but, well, you should because you were the one I called when you were going to Vegas right after that trade was announced. Like, right. you must put money on this team because they're going to win, believe me. And, and you know, most of the, the NBA analysts, they didn't even pick them to win the East. You know, there, there was only a couple that picked them to win the, 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 their division. Because people say, oh, you know, they're not that great and they're old. We've seen all-star teams before. But it was the the, the synergy of their skill set. It was the fact that in Garnett you had the best defensive player in the league. And then Pierce was, was able to be kind of a, a ball-dominant penetrator. And then Ray Allen was arguably the best shooter ever, at least until this current Warriors team came along. And you put those three together even without much else. You know, Rondo and Perkins, especially at that time, really weren't much else talent around them, but it didn't matter. They were so much better together and so much better than what people expected because they just fit, whereas most of the time these super teams, like, oh, we've got Shaq and Kobe, yeah, let's add Karl Malone and, and Gary Payton. I mean, it's intimidating, you know, to see all right. those on stars mm-hmm. in one team, but they all eat the ball, and so there's just going to be diminishing returns on, on how good it could be. It's very rare that you see it come together like that where, where the skill sets
0: also mix. Do you think Danny Ainge knew what he was doing because he played on those Celtics teams that had kind of that? Mikhail was the post up guy. Larry was the shooter. You know, you had Parish who played D and and rebound. They had, they had sort of a a balanced team that he played on in the eighties. I think
1: he did. Um, maybe for that reason, that's a, a good good reason to think about. Another is Danny was one of the first to adapt the uh, the kind of advanced analytics to bring people in, analytics people in to help him operate the team. And so, you know, a lot of times uh, I think that um, in the NBA, Houston's GM, Daryl Morey, is thought of as kind of the Billy Bean guy. And so people look at at his team and say, oh, well, you know, uh, they haven't won a championship, so analytics haven't been proven yet in the NBA level. But Danny Ainge is an example of he didn't make a big deal about it, but, you know, he would have guys at the uh, MIT uh, Sloan Analytics Conference every year. He would hire them, and, and they would help shape his uh, his approach. So, yeah, I do think he knew what he was doing to some extent um by trying to pair these specific players. Like for Everything that's ever come out, I mean, Danny's never, I don't think, done an interview about it, but everything from the people around him that has come out said that Danny wasn't trying to put together that group of superstar players to bring in a superstar. He was trying to put together a whole bunch of young talent and draft picks to get a package for Garnett. Like, that that he was specifically his goal. And so, you know, obviously, you know I'm a Garnett fan, so you always have to take what I say with a grain of salt. But analytically, and also just skill set-wise, he is very possibly the most portable NBA superstar in history. Right. And that he has a skill set that fits anywhere, that, that would fit with anyone. And so Danny, it seems like, said, okay, well, I've got Pierce. I know he's a great scorer. I want, well, I want Garnett. I specifically want Garnett. He couldn't get Garnett because he didn't have enough else. So then he said, okay, well, let me bring in Ray Allen, who is scoring, synergizes with Pierce's, and then if we get Garnett, then it's just going to be dumb. And it worked out that way at least for a year before the older player's body started breaking down. But um I, I don't know that that's often the case. I don't think it's an accident that Danny is currently one piece away from putting together another six squad. Like, this current Celtics team is not going to win as is. But if he can find a way to flip, he's got some stupid number of first-round picks. If he can flip, he doesn't have to flip for an MVP-level Garnett guy this time. But if he can flip for, like you mentioned, uh, Mutombo, someone who can play defense like that, to slide in as one of the big men with the rest of the players on this team, you're going to see this current Celtics team jump from, oh, they're also ran in the East. Oh, holy crap, they're up there, you know, battling with Golden State.
0: Right. It's a good bet to make for, like, who's going to come out of the East if they make a trade. People people will be sleeping on them, too. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, and we saw it with the Pistons, um, say, back in 04. when, when they traded for Rasheed Wallace. You know, they didn't have any big-name superstars on the team. Um, Analytics-wise, we can look back and say, well, Ben Wallace was their superstar because— he was making a huge impact, but he was doing it on defense, and he was averaging like four points and twenty something percent from the line. So nobody thought of him as a superstar. But when you took the the their group of four and uh, swapped out their weakest member for Rashid Wallace, who was another analytics superstar, they all of a sudden they just I mean they went stupid. I mean, you remember they went like. I don't know, 15, 20 games in a row where teams weren't scoring more than 70 points. I mean, it was just like you could not score on them. They were almost like a real-life version of what you were just trying to describe, putting together a team that nobody can do anything with.
0: Well, they and had Trin- For that year, they captured that. They had Prince, Wallace, and Wallace, right? So the, mm-hmm. like their front court was just locked down. I don't know about mm-hmm. Billups and, and, and Rip Hamilton. I, I can't remember if they were good defenders or not, but it probably doesn't matter that much.
1: No, they 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 fit into the unit. They they were the perimeter players. And what what actually kind of uh, ate their their success, if you will, is that the the offensive players still got the glory. And whether it was ever mentioned or not, I mean, I've never heard it mentioned. But I think you know that that '04 team was built around Ben Wallace, Rashid Wallace. Prince is kind of the third defensive role player, and then. uh Phillips and, and Hamilton and Rashid had enough offense between them to, to do what was needed for that defense to win. Kind of like the, the, the Ray Lewis uh, uh, Ravens back in the day. The defense was so good. It really, you didn't need that much. Print. Uh-huh. But but what happened in the NBA version of this with the Pistons was they had this stupid defense. They win a championship. And then the finals MVP is their offense guy. You know, is Chelsea Billups. And, and so, you know, then the next year, they come back, and I think that the players are thinking a little bit more about offense than they were about defense. They're still sick. They still make the finals. They would have won most series, but the Spurs were just good enough to beat them in seven. But then after that, you know, then they lose Larry Brown, and then they lose Ben Wallace. And every year when they lose uh, Larry Brown, they bring in Flip Saunders, who's an offensive coach. who make the offense a little better. It'll be that much better. But instead, it took away from what made them unique. So they were always after that just – really really good but never could they recapture that dominance
0: yeah you know I, I don't know if people remember but they put a clinic on the lakers and they they took them oh, yeah. apart and yeah. lakers were big favorites those were the kobe shack lakers they had won it before the only team that would could beat them was the spurs they i think they dominated the spurs in the conference finals and everyone thought it was kind of a foregone conclusion and they didn't, they didn't just lose to the pistons they got taken apart they were losing by like 30 in those games. Yeah. Like, I hate the Lakers. So I loved it. I was enjoying it so much. <laughs> it was like, I couldn't believe it. First, I was surprised, but it, it was just a great thing to watch. And yeah. And then they went to seven against a very good peak. Ginobili peak Parker peak Duncan, you know, Bruce Bowen was playing D and shooting three. I mean, they they also had a very well put together team. So it was like, and they barely lost to that team.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that Pistons team when, when they had that group of five with Larry as the coach was kind of absurd. You know, it was kind of a, uh, in a way, it was an analytics person's dream because it was the very epitome of okay, the way that the general public evaluates basketball cannot explain why this team is that good. And if you remember, like ESPN and, and every, nobody even really tried to explain it. It was almost just thought of, "Blah, oh, that was a fluke." You know, um, if, if, if you catch lightning in a bottle, that can happen, but you know, but there's no reason for why they took be down.
0: Player they took down one dynasty and they went to game seven against another dynasty. You know what I mean? It's not just like they beat a weak opponent in the final that one year and then disappear. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, it it, it
0: really obviously was not a fluke. And you're right. There were just no tools for the media to explain when your leading scorer is Richard Hamilton. That just doesn't Mm -hmm. make any sense.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And and I love it when things like that happen. You know, those Celtics had a former uh, MVP in Garnett, but they were another kind of example of that, like we just talked about, and even really the the if you go back old school, the 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 bad boy Pistons, um, you know, that I grew up with with uh, Isaiah Thomas and and their crew, it was a similar format where they had this ridiculous defense, and then Isaiah he really wasn't even by that point in his career he, he wasn't the offensive player that he used to be, but he was still considered a a, a star, so he got the credit when when they really should have gone elsewhere. Rodman, hey, Liz, and
0: Lam, Rodman and Lambeard, Sally, and Sally, and and those guys. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Uh, one last thing, and then we'll move on to some of the social stuff. What are the most portable qualities, right? So you said Garnett's the most portable player. I would think defense, one, right? Everybody needs mm-hmm. defense. Defense never. <laughs> there's nothing that defense gets in the way of, right? It's just like. Exactly. It's just an exactly. unqualified positive. And then two, I would think shooting. You know, if you're a great shooter, you don't have to shoot, but you can. If they get you the look, you're going to hit it. And then three, I would think passing. Those would be the three sort of most portable skills that any team needs.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good list Um, because, as you mentioned, defense is essentially additive. Like, if if you're a great defender, you come to a, a team and you're a better defender than what they had before, then the team is going to get better by however much better you are as a defender. So. So yeah, I think that's the most portable, especially for a big man. Um, you know, it, it, it it's very important, uh, for, 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 your front line to be great defenders. And then shooting, as you mentioned, is, is the other big one. It's almost like a big two and then any other quality. Um, shooting is the reason why I felt like this year's Warriors team would come together more so than the, those uh, LeBron Wade teams that, that we were talking about earlier, because you, you have, in you already had Curry and Klay and, and Thompson is arguably two of the best shooters. You could say you have arguably the best shooting point guard and arguably the best shooting shooting guard on one team already. I mean, you know, Ray Allen, Reggie Miller notwithstanding, you know, Klay Thompson is at least on that level. And then you add in arguably the greatest shooting small forward right. of all time mm-hmm. too, then even when they don't have the ball, there's such a threat that defenses can't, you know, can't do anything. And Draymond Green's not the greatest shooter, but to be a center... He's a ridiculous shooter, you know? So, like, you put all that together, and I figured that that they should have enough synergy. The other reason that they work is because of Draymond Green, who is such a elite defender, that he can make a huge impact on the game without needing the ball. The other day, that man should have had a quadruple double. I don't even know if you saw that. He had 10 steals, 5 blocks, 10 rebounds, and 10 assists in one game. The only reason he didn't have a quadruple double is because he only had 4 points. I was so mad at Steve Kerr. I was like, if I was ever the coach and I had <laughs> right. a guy with that lineup, I would tell everybody else to leave the court. Like, let Draymond shoot every time down till get to the 10. Because that's NBA history. But that's an aside. Right. So the point is, well, is, is,
0: that's why the Warriors work. He had five blocks, though. He could have a quintuple double with five – with halfway to uh, – I mean, a, a quadruple double halfway to the quintuple double. I mean, that's it, unheard of.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's off the charts. Like, so he did two things there. The quadruple double – I think only maybe David Robinson and, and uh, Hakeem Olajuwon have ever officially done. Um, and then there was something that Andre Kirilenko used to do all the time. They called it the five-by-five, five, right. which was, you know, five points, rebounds, assists, steals, and blocks. And, and so Draymond was on the cusp of both of them. He was one point away from a five-by-five, five, and then obviously he was six points away from a quadruple double. And having them both in the same game is so ridiculous. And the fact that nobody paid attention to it because we don't value defense like we should in the NBA drives me crazy. It's like that was arguably the single best game of the NBA season so far. And unless you're a nerd or happen to be on Twitter when people were tweeting like, Hey, you know, yeah, he just had a triple double without points.
0: So, but, so, so bottom line, like you agree with me, it's, it's one defense two shooting. Now is there, are there different kinds of defense? Like this guy's just more of an on the ball defender. This guy's a help defender. This guy oh, yeah. you know, defends in the low block and, you know, protects the rim. So Does that matter or defense is defense? Like we can just – if your defense is good, you're helping the team. Or some guys – because I think you wrote this about Kobe in one of your blog posts, which is that he he would get all defensive – all defense NBA because he was a really good on-the-ball defender, but he was a bad help defender, and it was actually more important to help. So he was actually a net negative on D, even though nobody was pointing that out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Team defense is much more important than individual one-on-one defense because – you know, team defense has that synergy component that you were talking about. And we're not going to get into it today because we're about to move to something else. But I would argue that even on offense, team offense is more important than individual offense. But, you know, that's for the next time you have me on. As far as team defense goes, being able to help out on your man, and even if you're not helping out on, on, on other players, but being aware of where other players are, uh, being in the right spot so that the team defense works, is huge, and if you got one guy who is playing one-on-one defense on his man, through the exclusion of rotating correctly, and, and then then the whole defense can kind of fall apart, and that's what you would see a lot of times with Kobe. But bringing it back to your original question, yes, the type of defense you play matters, and the position of defense matters. That's why you know we mentioned a few times having a dominant help defense big man is the single most important, or, or, or one of the single best ways. To, to build a really good team. Um, and so if you can have two of those, the way those Pistons did or the way the Spurs did when they had David Robinson and Tim Duncan, that's when you start getting those, okay, just historically off the chart defenses because they do add up. They, they are, they do have synergy and, and, and it just does nothing but help the team.
0: Right. And especially with the new, you know, you can't touch the perimeter guys like you used to, those guys are going to get to the basket and if they can't finish, they've got to pass. That's probably a huge advantage for the defense, right? They've got to kick the ball yeah. because, you know, you're 6'2 or 6'3 and you're trying to get to the rim and there's a seven-footer who's so quick to get there as soon as you beat your man that you're not finishing. You're, you've got to kick the ball back out and they've got to make a, a longer shot. Exactly. Or you're
1: still finishing but at a much lower efficiency. Like that's another thing that's kind of under the radar or maybe under the hood of, of, of a lot of analytics is that, If you put five guys out there on both teams, no matter how good or bad those five guys are, pretty much every time, both teams are going to score somewhere between 80 and 120. You know, they're going to shoot somewhere between 40 and 60 percent. You know, like like you're not going to put a team out there to score seven. You know what I'm saying? And so because of that, the ability of a team to change another team's shooting percentage is like massive.
0: I love that stuff. And I, and I always, you know, and again, I'm not even up on the current NBA, but I think about that stuff all the time. Like who, you know, who could, and what's the ideal team and, you know, how do you structure this? And, and, uh, I just, I can talk about it all day, but I want to also focus on another part of the hoops lab. And again, if, if you guys are listening, I highly recommend hoops Com. It's Andre's blog uh, about some of the social stuff you're posting and correct me if I'm wrong, but it just kind of seems like most of those posts, uh, when you read them, it, it kind of comes out of like, necessity. Like you're supposed to write about basketball, but some horrible thing happened and it's just on your mind and you just it's just you got to get it out of your system you you just it's just not you're just not yeah. in the basketball frame of mind when these things are happening
1: yeah that that's exactly how it happens i mean because i don't know if you know this i haven't really told a lot of people but so with the the hoops lab blog came online immediately before we went to to Vegas last year for for our, our Rotowire wire our conference and I had been back-populating it with old things that I had written for for RotoWire or different things, and 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 then that was when you know that kind of Philando uh, Castillo um, w- w- was shot on the the same night that, that 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 another black man was shot by the police, and I, it bothered me so much. You know, I had gone to to work that day and I was trying to be okay, but right before I left for work, they were playing the 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 recording, I guess, of when um, uh, uh, Philando's uh, girlfriend and and her daughter were in the police car and the daughter was trying to comfort her. And it's like, it just broke me down. And so I was at work that day and I was, you know, trying to get through the day and I kept, I ended up talking to my boss at work, you know, about how bothered I was and I still couldn't work. And so finally it was just like, you know what, I got to get this out. So I just sat down and started writing and I wrote, Everything I was feeling, I was sitting at my desk at work just straight falling while I was writing. And so once I got done with it, I was like, I don't know what to do with this because this isn't, you know, this isn't what the Hoops Lab is supposed to be. It's supposed to be about hoops. And so I didn't know whether I should put post it. I didn't know what to do with it. I ended up, I called my wife. I was like, you know, here, read this. I don't know. And finally, I just put it up and said, well, you know what, it's out in the world, this is my first article on my new basketball blog is uh, about something entirely different. And then it was well received, you know, and, and that made me, you know, so the next time, um, as we were leaving Vegas, uh, was, was when I guess the the police got shot in in Texas. And, and so it was all kind of related to what I, you know, I'd written about before, but it was also on my mind. We, we got back from Vegas. I was supposed to write an article that was going to come out that Monday. It was Sunday, um, I was going to work the next day, but um, again, it was on my mind. And in between the the, the first article and in that moment, I had this long conversation with a guy that turned out to be a police detective. And when we started talking, I hadn't known it. It was at a socially, uh, you know, socially event, and we just were talking, and and it was just like a, a black guy and a police detective um, talking about police brutality versus Black Lives Matter, and. You know, and it was a really good conversation. And I wanted to write about it. But, you know, my wife was like, you know, you probably shouldn't because, you know, you, you got good response the first time. But this is an NBA blog and you want that to be what people know you for. You don't want to, to kind of muddy the waters. And I said, yeah, you're right. You're right. I know you're right. But so that's why I didn't write about it in Vegas. But again, it was three in the morning. I was by myself. It was time for me to write about something else. And I couldn't get what I wanted to write out. Until I got this other off my chest, and so literally every one of these articles that I've ever written um, has been that that same format, where I was, I'm trying to do something else, but I've, I've got to I've got to clear my conscience on, on what's bothering me before I can move on.
0: Yeah, I, I enjoy the social stuff, and I think it's good. Obviously, it is a basketball blog; that's what you're doing. But you're a human being; you you, don't, you can't just you know walk through life just all I care about is basketball, you know? So, I mean, I think, um, it's good. I think people, especially today, like these days expect, like you know people have different interests. I think, I think people are just, you want to hear someone, if someone has a voice about something, I think it extends beyond one subject. I mean, not necessarily, but it, it certainly can the only, you know, I just want to say about the conversation with the detective blog, that was one of the few that I, I didn't love. I'm going to say, okay, you know, because I felt like, you were just being a little too generous with him. Um, And and, and here's, and here's the thing. And and I'll say a couple things. I mean, I, you know, look, we all have our own perspective based on our life experience, but like, you know, police, obviously they're in dangerous situations and it's legitimately scary. You pull someone over, it's night. You don't know who they are. If they have a weapon, whatever. Okay. I get it. But like, my view is you're supposed to be a professional. You know, Mm -hmm. if, if there's some like little old white lady and she sees some like black kids playing and they're getting a little rowdy, And she gets scared and calls the police and wouldn't have done it if it were white kids doing the exact same thing. I I forgive her. You know, like she got a little scared. There's a lot of propaganda. You know, you you recommended the movie 13th or whatever. And you watch that movie. There's been like an assault of propaganda that affects black and white people. Like it tells them, oh, these guys are dangerous. You got to be scared. So you have some older woman. She's been around absorbing a lot of that. She sees some kids getting a little rowdy. They're just playing, but doesn't know. Calls the police. I would forgive that, right? But she's not a professional. She mm-hmm. is just a regular citizen who might get scared and do something that's not right. You know, call call the police on people who shouldn't be you shouldn't report for anything cuz they're not doing anything wrong. But you're a professional police officer. I just hold you to a higher standard, man. I just think like you're a professional. Yeah, you're scared. Every it's normal to be scared, but you know how to be scared. You're trained. And mm-hmm. I got into a debate with it about this whole thing with um with Heather and I said, you know, my friend, he was on this airplane, and it took off, and then there's some, you know, the thing got really bumpy, and all of a sudden, those masks dropped out of the sky, right? Mm-hmm. And the pilot says, um, there's been some trouble. We've got to turn and land back in San Francisco where they took off from. Now, everybody in the plane is, like, shitting their pants at this point, right? <laughs> and he's right. scared, too. And then he hears the woman next to him say to her husband, no, 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 look, look, the flight attendants, they're really calm. They're calm. If there's something bad, you know, they'd be freaking out. I, I'm okay. And then he thought, no, they're trained to be calm in this situation so that the whole plane doesn't panic because they're professionals. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, that's a pretty scary situation, too. But, like, you got to be – and they did land and made it, but it was dicey, and there was some, it was bad. They didn't really explain exactly what went wrong, but you don't go back, right? Like,
1: Right, you know, right, right. Something was wrong.
0: But my point, I don't want to get too much on the air, airplane metaphor, is that if you're a professional, like, okay, it's dark, it's night, it's scary, there's procedures – you're calm, but you don't shoot first out of fear. Fear is not an excuse, right? Oh, yeah. I shot him three times. I was afraid. There better be a oh, yeah. damn good reason. He better be like whipping out like something that looks exactly like a gun or you, know, you have to have like, you cannot just say I was afraid and I shot that to me is for a police officer. That is not a defense, right?
1: Yeah, no, no, I I feel you. And, and there's like multiple levels of response that I would make to what you just said. Um, first, you're entirely correct. And you, you'll hear that level of conversation. Um, you know, if, if me and my wife are talking about it, or me and my friends, um, we, we give similar examples. So, you know, what like if you're a firefighter and you got to go into a fire, right? That's a scary situation. Right. Like, you know, I no don't matter how much you're trained, it, walking into a fire is never going to be the oh yeah that was nothing. You know, that that's a, a scary life-changing situation. But you're a trained firefighter, so you do it. You can't say oh, I didn't go into that fire because you know. I was scared, you know, like that, that, that wouldn't work in any field, but it seems to be the excuse often given in these uh, police shootings. And so I agree with you, that's not an excuse and it's unacceptable. And that's part of the reason why I write, you know, it's part of the reason why in each of those articles, including that one, I hashtagged it with the Black Lives Matter because it, you know, it 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 is a a legitimate, you know, issue. It is something that needs to be brought up and addressed and, and, and brought forward. Um, in that article that you mentioned, you know, I can see see your point about whether I was too nice. On the other hand, when I was writing it, I could also see the opposite point um, that I, I felt like I might have been too hard on it. Like one of the first uh, things I did when, once I put it out was talk to my friend Rio and say, hey, you know, show this to Mark. Because if it's going to be a thing, I want him to see it in, right. and, and <laughs> up front, you know. Um, because you know, I, I say things like you mentioned in that article. You know, he one of the, he point he put he said in the conversation and also in the article that well, you know, you're in these situations and you have to act fast and you never really know and you have to be prepared. You you know, the number one thing is to go home to your family. I'm like, I get all of that, but it's your job. And if it's your job and you've been trained properly, then there are times when you should know how to de-escalate the situation. It's not just the oh well, he hit me, I hit back. Like no. You're trained for this, and he gave the example of, like, a, a stick versus a snake. He's like, well, you know, if you've been bitten by a snake before and you see a stick, you're going to react to it like it's a snake. And I was like, yeah, but that doesn't work here because each individual person is innocent of what the quote-unquote snake before did. And you can't shoot a dude in the chest and say, oh, my bad. The last guy was reaching for a gun. Right. Like, oh, that was yeah. a
0: terrible example he gave. That was a horrible analogy. That was the stupidest yep. analogy I've ever seen. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, it was a snake before I saw somebody shot at me before. Okay, then retire from the force. If you're now yeah. so biased that you're gonna shoot everybody because you one time you got you know you got a bad guy. Then you can't, mm-hmm. then, then you're just saying you need to retire, obviously. It was a terrible mm-hmm. analogy. Oh, because <laughs> something happened now, I'm going to shoot everybody else because it might be that? That's a horrible yeah. analogy. And, and, you know, so I, I, look, I'm pro police, man. I think these guys do a hard job. I think they should get paid more, you know, but I also think they should be held to a high standard. They shouldn't just take any scrub on the force who can't handle it. It's a hard job. It should be, yeah. you know, every, it's hard to be a doctor. It's hard to be whatever. It should be hard to be a policeman. And they should be paid more and they should be held to a higher standard. You know, I, I realize realized mm-hmm. that, you know, me saying it's not going to make it happen. They're not going to get paid more. And it's, they got to fill the ranks and, and they need people. But like, you know, I just think this is like, this is demeaning the actual job. That guy's demeaning the officers. They're just these scared little guppies. That just like anything that happens, they've got to do it. That's to me that like belittles who they are.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I can agree with all of that. And, and this deals with the, the kind of multiple levels to the answer to the question I was talking about, um, there was this, you know, rapper singer um, back in the '90s. She was really big, named Lauren Hill, and uh, she was on in this group called the Fugees. I um, on, the
0: Fugees, Jay. Don't, don't, don't. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, but
1: everybody listening I'm might not. not so I'm not that, that old. Yeah. But um, you know, she had this song um, with the Fujis back in the day, and she was talking about how she was trying to get messages across, but she wants the message to be received. So her audience was the hip hop community, and so in the song, her lyric was yeah, I had a motherfucker, so he's ignorant, people hear me. And the point was, was that at that time, especially in rap, if you weren't cussing, if you if you didn't, you know, present, you know, a certain edge to your rap, there was a lot of people that weren't going to take in what you had to say. This is kind of the opposite of that. You know, as a black man, right. I can't go as hard as you can right if, on your medium and have people respond to it. If I go all in on, you know, I've got my my kufi on and, you know, i am got my fist in the air and Black Lives Matter, I'll have an audience. People will hear me, but it won't be the audience that I reach my sports. You know, at least it won't be a lot of them. And so my, part of my point is that it's the exact same things we were talking about earlier with analytics. Like, I don't want to speak in such a way that only the people that already know what I'm talking about understand me. You know, so it, it maybe I might have been I, I could have gone harder against Mark in that article, but I felt like I got the criticism out there and the the situations out there to a group of people that maybe wouldn't have known or been fully versed on what was going on without them immediately having to have a oh wait a minute, you know, push back, you know, I have to defend myself or defend what I perceive to be police or my race or whatever. You know, I, I want to be able to get the criticism out there without necessarily turning everybody off. And it's a hard line to walk.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I totally I totally get that. I do think that's a tough line to walk. I, I, I still <laughs> think you could have said, I don't agree, this is illogical. This, this, You know, you could have broken down his analogy and said, you know, and, and the professional point. You could make it very, you know, not heatedly, but very, again, I'm, I'm not in your <laughs> shoes. I don't have to deal with, like, the immediate... Oh, you're just saying that because of this, you know, like I get it. I get where you're coming from and you are trying to reach a, a wider audience. You want to sort of, it's almost like if you're going to er err on the side of being a little bit too generous rather than too aggressive, but I wouldn't even call it aggressive, but I hear you. And I'm. Also but, but no, before, before we leave that example, though, right. I do want to point out, I did like, you know, what, what you were talking about, like um, that, that
1: whole uh, stick, you know, the stick versus a uh, snake analogy. Like, this is my response. You know, my response was, whoa, 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 I said. The problem with that analogy to me is that in this case, the stick is a living person, and the person has absolutely no idea the plan with the toy or wallet in a certain way will remind a given officer of something that that other person had done in the past. And you can't then execute an innocent person based on the actions of someone who has nothing to do with this situation. That This seemed like the very definition of racial profiling. Punishing someone for the crime was someone else of the same race has done, that's the worst output of stereotype. I just didn't say, Man, that's some bullshit. You know, like <laughs> I, I had to, you know, right. you know what I'm saying? like you have to say it in such right, a right. way that, that you get your point across without necessarily right.
0: just being offended. You, you, you did, know? you actually did, and you read that. You did push back more than I'm giving you credit for. That is true. Um, I, you know, but you didn't take it to the next conclusion of like if a person is basing on those racial profiling. Is basing his police work on that type of obvious and blatant racial profiling, and then he needs to leave the force you know what i mean that 's yeah you know but whatever you did you did say it so i 'm not giving you full credit you 're right that 's absolutely right. I read it as like sort of like I would have said more, but i 'm not in your situation i 'm not going to be subject to the bias of you know just oh you 're just, just saying that because he 's black and he 's just saying that because he 's mad about this, which is unfair, but it is something unfortunately you have to deal with sometimes. I want to say one other thing, um, this is just from my perspective and I'll let you finish it. I'll let you finish it. Cause we we're running kind of long on this podcast, but is that if like 10 years ago, like someone said to me, you know, police shoot a lot of unarmed black people, I would have been like, yeah, I'm sure it happens, but mm-hmm. you know, occasionally there's like some bad police officers, but I don't think it's like, you know, maybe like a slightly greater risk, you know, than if you're a white person, I, I would have just thought. Yeah, there's some bad apples, and it happens now and then. And not until we see all these videos, and this is, you know, that weekend was by no means, you know, there's been 10 or 12 or 15 of them, and how many that don't get videoed. And, right. I, you know, as, as, a, as a white person who almost never gets pulled over by the cops, I, I had no idea the epidemic level of this. And I know it's the whole country, and there's 300 million people in the country, so, you know, everything's reported, but it's just... it it, it honestly like it just makes me just realize like you might not know what I might not know what I'm talking about in a lot of these instances because I would not have I would have been like oh I think you're exaggerating you know even if you said it was half as bad as it actually is I would have thought you were exaggerating
1: yeah I mean that that is one of the big outcomes and hopefully it's a positive outcome kind of come out of a lot of this negativity you know is that this is actually a thing. And, you know, I almost, you know, we're running out of time, so I'm not going to go too far. But I could, I could bring that to kind of the whole racial situation in America. Um, That I think that the perception among the majority of people was that the racial situation in America was better than it actually was. Just because after, you know, I think most people felt like, well... Racism in Martin Luther King. You know, he got shot, and then, you know, in the 70s, everything was all good. And it wasn't. You know, things kept continuing. But, you know, you mentioned some of the propaganda from, um, you know, documentaries like The 13th by A. DuVernay. Everybody will watch that. But, you know, because of that propaganda in the 80s, you know, people are feeling like, okay, you know, everything's okay now. And also that that they weren't, that the people weren't public. With their racism anymore, they learned how to hide it, and so what happened was you had you would have guys like your Jesse Jacksons and your Al Sharptons you know pointing out situations that you know something would happen they would say, "Hey, that's racist," and they became a, a, almost like a cartoon, you know, nobody really took them seriously. It was like, ah, yeah, well, you know that's them they're going to play the race part that's what I right. term the race right. that is the worst term. I hate that, and that's anything you know so as a african American you would be in situations where you would be like, now this is some racist stuff going on. But I have to choose if I say something, then I'm the angry black man or I'm the angry black woman or I'm playing the race card when no really legitimately some things are going on, be it police brutality, be it in the workplace. And I think with all of the cameras that, that, that came out, you know, um, that the phone cameras that are showing what's going on with the police, then, the last election kind of did something similar where a lot of the, the, you know, white nationalists that have been considered a fringe group when they had candidates that they could get behind, but now they're front and center, they're on TV and, and, and stuff that hasn't been publicly disclosed in a couple decades, all of a sudden is, is out there loud and proud. And so I think people are maybe seeing that the situation isn't as good as we thought it was. And hopefully For most people that are reasonable on the subject, that means we need to work on making it better as opposed
0: to work on putting the
1: cap back on the way it was before.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll just say two things. I kind of disagree with you about the election. A lot of people that voted for Trump, the reason that he won were former Obama voters either stayed home or or flipped. And those people are obviously not racist. They voted for Obama. There are obviously some fringe people. They're getting a lot of media attention, and the Trump certainly played to them, and they probably showed up a lot and forced to – to vote, But I, I kind of think, like, it's the systemic stuff that's really the, the the bad part. Those fringe people, you know, obviously they're dangerous if you were in one of their towns and, you know, in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I, I feel like the – I feel like liberals especially, like, they, you know, if you say the wrong word, you're never working again. You know, there's that tennis commentator who described Venus charging the net as guerrilla style, and he said it was G-U-E-R – uh, instead of G O R. But, like, let's just say he meant it, to, let's say that's just BS and he really meant it like a gorilla charging, right? Well, that's mm-hmm. probably something to be avoided, right? But, like, I've called Ben Roethlisberger a gorilla. Uh, obviously, there's racial connotations because of things like the documentary and the propaganda that people have been fed. But, like, is that guy really the problem? You know, someone should say, a producer should take him inside and say, just go easy on that. There's been a lot of propaganda about stuff like that, better not to use that word. But that should be the end of it. So they're they're firing people like that, and everyone's patting themselves on the back. And yet, look how many people are going to jail, you know? Look at the, you know, anyone who's investing in for-profit prisons that, you know, discriminate racially in terms of who goes and how long they stay. You know, that to me is like the real systemic problems. And you know, I, I feel like Trump's election was because, for, for mostly for economic reasons, more than race reasons, but, you know, we can disagree on that. But, um, but that the real that, that's
1: problem— actually, you know, Go ahead. Okay. Well, no, because—so what, what you're doing is making something either-or problem that's right. not an either-or problem. And you're also guilty of the same thing you were just talking about with, with, with police brutality, where you're kind of minimizing right. something as fringe that's not. And 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 I know that, you know, we didn't get to talk about politics much here and the presidential election. Like, it's a hot-button topic. Kind of the, the way we were just talking about the police brutality and what I— wanted to avoid. It's impossible to avoid politics now because if you say any word, people hear what they were already arguing about. And so, you know, what I said just now was that there were a lot of white nationalists who felt safe to come more out of the closet than they have um, during the presidential election. And that's absolutely true. But what you heard was the white nationalists are why Trump won and that they're racist. That's not what I said, but it's not mutually exclusive. Right. You know what I'm saying? I think that it can be right. economic, that so we're a big push to fight Trump one, but that, that, that the white nationalists, because they're not a large enough group anymore to win an election by themselves, but they are a group of 10 to 20 million people by last estimate, but, you know, they have not had a public voice. The Tea Party movement was kind of their loudest public voice, and yes, the Tea Party had a lot to do with economics, but they also contain that group of 10 to 20 million who identify as white nationalists. And they did come out for the public, uh, for his supporters of the Trump administration. Now, they're not all Trump supporters. All Trump supporters aren't racist. Uh, a lot of Trump supporters may have been Obama. They want change. Uh, a lot of them do have economic concerns. All that's true. While being true, those 10 to 20 million white nationalists are also in that party. It shouldn't so, be minimized to not friends. So, so, so. I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I wrote about 10 to 15 different things that happened right around the election that were specifically uh, racially targeted. It wasn't because I was in, you know, Tupelo, Mississippi. Like, I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's the closest you can get to a uh, early-style, um, hippie-type environment. So if this happened in here, there's not a safe place.
0: Well, I, 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 just, I just disagree about the number. I mean, 10 to 20 million white nationalists, I, I think the number is like 30,000 or something like that, you know? Oh, no. You're, yeah. oh,
1: that's very naive. Yeah. That, that's incredible. So, so, so
0: like I 10 to 20 million white about- – I, I, I don't – I would not doubt that 10 to 20 million people might, you know, have racist views or be more influenced by the propaganda they've heard over time or use words that probably aren't polite. Um, but I I just think like the amount of people – like David Duke ran for – office in louisiana okay he was like finished like seventh for congress okay like okay. he didn't even get well, this is louisiana he didn't even get any so he was like the seventh he finished seventh like to, to me this well, is a fringy bunch of people and oh no 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 so, okay chris you're a very logical person you right. used to be a lawyer
1: right so just think about so you mentioned america has 30 million people 300 out of, yeah. i mean 300 million people out of 300 million, yeah. of right. 300 million 10 to 20 is not that you know that's not going to win you elections anymore But what is the viewership of Breitbart? Do you think it's 10 to 20,000?
0: No, they probably probably have a few million viewers. But the thing is, like, not all of them are just hardcore white nationalists. I mean, you know, Bannon has pushed that line and certainly gotten attention for it. But I I don't I don't see like millions of people being like hardcore white nationalists. That's not like a party. There's no like white nationalist party. There's Trump who said a lot of sort of anti-immigrant and nativist things, but he also spoke to, you know, their, their economic situation, which Clinton just totally ignored. Like they don't even exist these people and they do exist and and they're suffering and they were just totally ignored and by both parties for many years. And now he says, Hey, you know, you know, you're hurting, you're losing jobs. There's drug addiction. People are dying at younger ages. It's a, it's a miserable situation there. And then he threw a bone to some, you know, racist stuff, but I don't, I don't know. I just don't see evidence that there's 10 to 20 million. That's, that would be a huge movement, 10 to 20 million. I mean only – Well, so did,
1: one thing – I got that number from, um, from uh, the, the stats that, that, that did a lot of polls. 538? Yeah, five, that, that number came from an article from 538. Yeah. So I'm not going to argue about the specific number. Okay. But you know, it was not an accident that Trump's first step into the political arena did not mention economics at all. His first step into the uh, political arena, questioning the legitimacy of the first black president. Right. It was not an accident that Trump's first speech as a presidential candidate started off with, you know, Mexican rapists. They're yeah. not accidental. It's not, and, it, and he's not catering to, to 20,000 yeah. ten to twenty thousand people. to Twenty thousand people is not doing anything in, in out of three hundred million. He yeah. was catering to a specific group that has numbers behind them. You want to push back against twenty million? I'll let you argue with the, the, the poster right. website for that. But it's not
0: ten thousand. Like, yeah, no and, and let me let me be clear. I'm not defending any of that rhetoric. I, I think it's bad. It's it's harming it's us. It's
1: bad and it's wrong, but it's also of a purpose. Right. That's that, that but, that's but I think it's lost if you try to throw it completely into the economic.
0: Yeah, yes, but, but, but I do I do think but I do think economic. the anti immigrant stuff, especially for Mexico, is economic to an extent. You know, it's an idea of hey, they're taking your jobs. Hey, we need to bring back your jobs, right? And it's let's economic. let's divide but let's divide people. Also, Let's divide people yeah. along along the sort of nationalistic and racial um, and, and, and get, you know, the people that I want to vote for me being like, yeah, it's us against them, which is what all demagogues do instead of, you know, trying to figure out how can we help everybody that's in this country. So, so I, I see the purpose of it, but I, I guess I disagree that the purpose was, you know, let's get the white nationalist vote out because I think that's a very small vote. I think it was let's get the people who feel like immigrants and bad policies and people in Washington who have been ignoring them, um, are finally going to get their due get, let's get that vote. That was what I think the purpose was. It was nefarious and it was a nefarious way to go about it. But I, I, I just, I, to me, and again, I could be wrong. As I said, I'm, I'm humbled by the fact that I would have argued with you. If you said black people get shot by the police far more often, it's way more common than you realize they're unarmed. There isn't probable cause. I would have been like, ah, it happens now and then. And I would have been totally wrong about that. Um, and so yeah. I could be wrong about this, but I, but from what I've researched and looked at and, and I've stu- you know, I've been sort of really paying attention to, cause like you, I'm concerned. I, I don't, you know, I'm concerned about the politics of the country right now. I, I don't see that being like a strong movement that like, you know, people are running for Congress and Senate on, I'm a white nationalist. I don't think people are out. There's some fringe people saying that the David Dukes, but again, he finished seventh in Louisiana.
1: What I would say is that you seem to be addressing this as though a white nationalist, that's all that they care about. That, that, and also that being, because think about what you just said. You said, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to use the economics to, to you know, justify the xenophobia and the us against them, and that's what demigods do. But if you're xenophobic, if it's us against them, and the us all is white, then you're a white nationalist. You might not think about yourself in that those terms. That might be the biggest thing about you, but it has become, a, the little old lady example you gave earlier, right. the little old lady that, that, you know, has been hearing propaganda that believes that Black people are, are a certain way and that Hispanics are a certain way and that all Muslims and Arabs are a certain way. She does not identify herself as racist in, in, in any way. If you asked her, she would probably laugh at it. But if her decision-making, along with the other things that drive her, are also driven by the fact that she believes that, you know, black people to be thugs and all Muslims to be terrorists and, you know, or maybe even not all, but enough of them right. makes them them and not a us. Then race has become part of her decision-making. And again, I've never said that all Trump voters are racist, but there are a lot of them, you know, I won't even put a number on it of which, If you you know, to go through a list of 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 ten of things drove them, there within that ten would be things that two generations ago been outright racist. Now it's not like that anymore. The world has changed in that respect. But there was a lot more movement towards ideas and ideals that are racist in their execution with this election, this administration. The, the the whole continuum moved in a direction over the last year with this election. It was very scary for people that look like me.
0: Yeah, no, I, I don't doubt that. I, I'm kind of buying more what you just said, which is that that lady example is a good one. There are many, many people like that, <laughs> for sure. Way more than ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand. There's probably millions, right? But I, I also think that those people are mostly, you know, if they came, if they gave in, if they bought the xenophobic message of like these Mexicans are stealing our job or these terrorists are going to get us. Yeah. They might've fallen for that con or they might have some propaganda that makes them willing to believe that, but that's not like who they are in their identity. It may be in there or may they may be susceptible to it, but you know, most of those people would treat a person of their race politely if they sat down to dinner with them. You know, I, that's my belief at least, you know, they may do some actions that are fear based and susceptible and, and you know, humans are susceptible to, acting badly when they're scared or desperate, you know, as the case may be. And that doesn't excuse it, but I, I think that's a more accurate characterization. But I would hardly say they're white nationalists, you know. I, I would...
1: See, But the thing is, you know, scared people operating in mass, you know, even back in the day, there were a lot of people that didn't believe in slavery. Even back in the, the, the last century, there were a lot of people that didn't necessarily believe in lynching, you know. But if they're in a group and there are loud enough people pushing that mindset and they're desperate because they feel like, well, our economy is built on slavery or our economy is built on this workforce, and these people are hurting our way of life, and I've got a family to feed, and a lot of the people that didn't identify themselves as the leaders of the pack were still participating in the
0: lynching. Right. Yeah. It's dangerous, no doubt. It's dangerous if people get whipped up into that, and that's what they're focusing on. And that's why that rhetoric is terrible, right? That's why you don't do that, even if in the end it's like, oh yeah, just getting votes. But you just don't go there. You don't. You don't even open that door. You don't start to divide people like that. I, I agree, and I agree it's dangerous. I just, I just would say we're not there yet. Hopefully, we never get there. I think you're reasonable to, to be wary and afraid of that, and concerned about that. You have a family. You have three kids. Obviously, you're worried about that. Oh, who wouldn't be? But I don't think we're there yet. And I don't ascribe those people to that type of behavior yet. You know, I think it's, it's a danger. It's something that, you know, that it's like, Hey, stop talking like that. If you're talking to the president, stop doing that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you know, so, but, but I, I guess we're just, you know, again, there's different experiences and, and I've had three black kids and I saw the country going in this direction. Maybe I'd be saying what you were saying. Maybe I'd be, you know, very wary of like, Hey, let's not, even, you know, open the door in the least bit and we shouldn't obviously. Anyway, thanks for making the time, Dre. Great stuff.
1: Yeah, this was a blog. Good. I hope good. you actually
0: invite me back. Oh, you will be invited back.
1: All right. That's good.
0: All right. That's the professor, Enjoy. Dr. Andre Snelling's. Basis of the conversation was his blog, which has both social issues and tons of hoops. Hoopslab.rotowire.com. I strongly, strongly recommend that you check it out. Also, follow him on Twitter at Professor DRZ. This is the East Coast Offense Podcast. It is brought to you by FanDuel. There's a special offer for new users. Get a free six-month RedWire subscription with a ten-dollar deposit on FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com/RW. Not only will you get the free subscription, but you have the ten dollars available to play with on FanDuel. It's more than forty dollars in value for just ten bucks. Go to FanDuel.com/RW.